I wonder how many of you have ever been to a parade and you stand, you're standing on the side of the road by the parade, but you're unable to see because someone in front of you is blocking your view. That's actually never happened to me. I'm the guy standing in front of you, blocking your view of the parade, and I apologize. Our text this morning features Jesus' encounter with a man named Zacchaeus. And to understand the context of this account more, more plainly, I want to first show you a map of Israel. It's sort of a homemade map. I hope you can see it. What you see are two dotted lines, one traveling down the left side of the screen, the left side of Israel on the Mediterranean coast. The other red dotted line is a similar path. It's a road. Both of them are roads. That road goes from basically northern Galilee up by the Sea of Galilee down past the Dead Sea. On the road by the coast, that's the road you would take if you were going from, say, northern Israel or Lebanon and we're traveling all the way to Egypt. That's the coast road. It's still the same today, by the way, in, in Israel. The middle part of the country, the middle part of the country is a mountainous. You don't see the mountains drawn in there, but it's mountainous. And the roads are, are difficult to travel. And the road on the right by the Dead Sea that you see there, right at the top of the Dead Sea, that lake in the middle of the screen, that Dead Sea, that right on the northern tip of that, is a little town called Jericho. Now, if you were a Jewish person, and you were traveling from the northern part of Israel, and that was a part of the nation where a lot of the Jewish people lived, if you lived up by the Sea of Galilee, or in the city of Nazareth, or any of the towns in northern Israel, and you wanted to go to Jerusalem, it looks like the straightest way would be just to go down the center of the country. But you wouldn't travel that way because of the rocky terrain, as well as the fact that the area of the middle part of the country was dominated by the Samaritans, and the Samaritans and the Jews simply didn't get along. And there was also a lot of thievery and, and crime in that middle part of the country. So the Jews would scoot on over to the red line by the Sea of Galilee, and then down to the Dead Sea, and they would travel down that road and just right there at Jericho at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, they would then make a left-hand turn or a right-hand turn for them, and they would go to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. By the way, anytime you read in the Scriptures about going up to Jerusalem, that was literally true. You went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was about the highest point in the country, at nearly 3,000 feet in sea level. Jericho is about 1,200 feet below sea level in that rift valley. And so it was quite a hike, but you still would take that coast road. If you were headed to the holy city, the, the city Bill, the earthly city that Bill sung about, not just the heavenly one, if you're, if you're going to the holy city, you're going for a festival or for an event or for a particular holiday or a particular gathering. And that's exactly where these people were going. There were countless people at the time of this passage. There were countless people who were attending the Passover celebration. So they're headed to Jer Jericho. And they're, they're on that road, which, by the way, is a tollway. Think the tri-state tollway of the Middle East. 
only there's no I-pass. Because at Jericho, the reason you were funneled down that road, the occupying Roman government was uh, uh, obviously collecting taxes. That was the whole point of it. Israel was occupied by this, frankly, hated Roman government and their army. They set up toll booths there at Jericho on the toll road, and they made a lot of money collecting money from the pilgrims who came down from Israel, from northern Israel, to head on the way to Jerusalem. Now, it wasn't just a little bit of money that you had to pay. It wasn't just for the use of the road. This is how they also collected their annual property taxes. And so they had a record of all the pilgrims who had come the year before and the year before that. And they would ask you again about your property and not just the travel on the road, which they also charged you for, but you were required to pay taxes on every cow, calf, and camel you owned. And this is how the Roman government financed its operations in that part of the world. Now, what's happening as the story begins is that Jesus is making his own Passover journey as he passes through Jericho. He's taking the exact same route. And as he's coming down and headed toward the toll booth in Jericho, by now people are noticing him. They're seeing him coming. And he is a star now. He's what we'd call in modern language. He, he is now, for a lot of people, a rock star. They've heard of him. They've heard his teachings. They know the work that he had done. They had heard about or a few had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. He recently just healed blind Bartimaeus, and that was getting a great deal of conversation. This is the man who had turned the water into wine, and so he is a star, a famous person, famous for many for all the wrong reasons, but a famous person. And so when the news spread that Jesus was on his way into Jericho, a mob began to assemble, a happy mob, a joyous mob of people who are elated that they're going to be in the presence of Jesus of Nazareth, part of this wonderful holiday celebration, despite the taxes they had to pay, this was a fun experience for them. And there's one man in the group, there's one man on the scene in our account, the man Zacchaeus, whom we remember today. He was the overseer of the entire taxing authority of the government of Rome. He wasn't just a toll collector. He was the guy over all the toll collectors. And every time a Jewish citizen passed through the tollway, they didn't just pay the taxes that they actually were owed. They also were asked, in no uncertain terms, for a gratuity for all the trouble they had caused just by passing through the gates. This was a corrupt political system. We, of course, would never know of such a thing. So they would collect their gratuity. And then Zacchaeus, the lead tax collector, the man over all of the taxing authority, would rake off the top of their gratuities as he supervised them in their work. So Zacchaeus was a profoundly wealthy guy. He took these surcharges. He was a, an immoral, greedy, awful guy. 
And what makes it worse was he was Jewish. He's one of the people of God, at least by birth. And so he's complicit with the Roman authorities. And all of this makes it ever more worse that this man is taking money from God's own people illegally, immorally, spending it on himself, and helping the hated, despised, occupying Roman authorities. This was an ugly scene in that respect. But on this day, Jesus comes into town, and Zacchaeus took a break from his thievery. Being short, he couldn't see over the heads of other people on the side of the road, so he climbed a sycamore tree. And sycamore trees then and now have lots of branches. So you can imagine Zacchaeus, this small guy, perhaps sitting on one of the many branches out on a limb of the sycamore tree. Maybe he got there a little bit early so he would be sure not to miss Jesus. He had no idea what was coming. Maybe he had a few dates or figs with him, and he's sitting on a limb of the tree, just sort of having a snack, watching all the people. Nobody's going to talk to him anyway. He might as well be alone on the branch of a tree. And there he is, maybe having a snack or two. And he's just wanting to see Jesus. This man, on this day, is about to get a lot poorer and a lot richer at the very same time. Along comes Jesus. People are shouting hosannas. People are thrilled to see him. Jesus, no doubt, is somewhat nonplussed by this whole celebration. He knows this is fleeting, that this isn't going to last. But as he passes under a tree, he sees Zacchaeus. And shockingly, he instructs him to come not only out of the tree, He then tells him in front of all of these people who are in earshot, he says, I'm going to stay at your house today. I'm going to stay at your house today. This is the most despised man in the territory. And Jesus says, I'm going to go to your house. Zacchaeus himself is stunned. How did he know my name? What's he want with me? What's this all about? But he replied, and I'm sure fairly quickly, sure, come to my house. It's the best house in Jericho. We'll put on a feast. This is a great honor. He must have also been thinking, this is certainly going to improve my reputation. Then the story, as Luke tells this account, goes silent. Zacchaeus and Jesus it's implied have a conversation. So the part that I'm going to say next is speculation. It's not stated in the text. It's not unusual for the writers of the Gospels to give us the snippets of what happened in Jesus' life. They didn't have enough time or paper or materials or room. They even admitted this themselves to to put in everything that Jesus did. But it's implied that there's a conversation that takes place. And I suspect strongly because this is what Jesus does. Jesus seized the initiative. What, by the way, God always seizes the initiative for us. We're not even in this place this morning solely or only because of our own initiative. 
This is a prompting from God to be one of God's people. When children are baptized in this place, we're saying in the baptism of a child who had nothing to do other than being the joyful privilege of being born into a Christian home. When we baptize a child, the child had nothing to do with arranging the baptism. What we're doing is making a visible statement that this is the work of God and this is God's own initiative to which we pray one day the child will respond. So God seizes the initiative here. In every step along the way of this encounter with Zacchaeus, Jesus is seizing the initiative. So no doubt, over a meal in Zacchaeus' beautiful home, which was likely by the Jordan River, no doubt the biggest home, the best home in Jericho, no doubt there in that home, a conversation takes place over a fabulous meal, the two of them waited on by servants. And one wonders, one wonders how Jesus began that conversation, though again, I suspect he seized the initiative. There may have been some pleasantries. Jesus might have said to Zacchaeus, how's it going? How's your work, Zacchaeus? How are things here in Jericho? But pretty soon the conversation turned, I suspect, to very serious things. After asking him, tell me about your life, Zacchaeus, I can say, I can imagine him saying to him, by the way, the wealth you've acquired, have you acquired that rightly? I wonder if he shared a scripture or two with him. I wonder if he may have quoted from a psalm like Psalm 32, Zacchaeus, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. At some point, as Jesus seizes the initiative, Zacchaeus must have been in the middle of a, of a personal transformation. And maybe his response echoed the response of David in that same psalm. Then I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Maybe the conversation went a different way. Maybe Jesus dismissed the small talk. Maybe he went right at him, lovingly but firmly. Maybe he quoted Isaiah chapter 10, wash and make yourself clean, Zacchaeus. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Zacchaeus, amend your life. No doubt, however he did it, Jesus helped Zacchaeus to see that his crimes weren't just his greed or his complicity with the Roman government. They were sins against his very own people. And they were sins that demanded justice. They demanded restitution. Zacchaeus did not just need a religious experience. He needed a genuine wholehearted conversion, a conversion of his soul, 
a conversion away from his unethical practices, of his hoarding of wealth, a conversion of his whole being. If that conversation happened over a meal like I think it did, imagine what it would be like to be Zacchaeus and dining in the presence of ultimate love. You're having a fabulous meal, but that was irrelevant. You're dining in the presence of ultimate love. That encounter, we would think it to be sweet and wonderful, but it had to also be a very challenging conversation. But the principle is the same for us as it was for Zacchaeus. God, in Jesus, made the first move. He invited him into a conversation. He invited him into a relationship. And that led to an encounter of what we would call around here life-changing love. Because Zacchaeus responded, presumably after the lunch, probably in the presence of many people. Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Today, Jesus responded, today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Don't lose the power of the language that Jesus just spoke. When he says today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Not as this, only is this salvation in a spiritual sense for Zacchaeus. This is a reminder to him and to the people who were listening. This errant Jew who has betrayed his own people, who has stolen from them and has taken from this awful government. This man, this man is a son of Abraham. He is one of us. He's back in the family. And that must have felt incredible to Zacchaeus. All of this happened, all of it did, because Jesus came into town and a guy went out on a limb figuratively and literally, to see Jesus. I'm captured by this notion of going out on a limb. That's what Zacchaeus did. And I looked up the roots of this phrase, going out on a limb, just in English. Going out on a limb means putting yourself in a risky situation or taking a wild guess at an answer that might not be shared by others. Zacchaeus took a real risk in this story. He had a miserable life, no question about it. He had a life with no friends and no respect and no joy. So on the one hand, you could say he didn't have much to lose. But he had a job that made him a lot of money. And after this event, his money largely is gone. And for sure, he's not going back to that job. All because he went out on a limb all because of that one decision. I'd like us to think about what risks in our life 
what risks in our relationship with God would be worth considering as we would go out on a limb and consider change. When I was a kid, our family had a bunch of cats. By the way, I want to tell you right in advance, this is an unusual illustration, so get ready. (laughs) Our family had a bunch of cats. We lived in the country, we had a ranch, and we had a barn, horses and cattle. And the barn, of course, had a lot of mice because the animals would spill their feed on the ground. And so to counteract all the mice, we had a bunch of cats. And the cats were wonderful. They did their job. And some of you have seen barn cats before. They're not the friendliest cats, but they do the job. And sometimes we would watch as those cats would climb up in the trees near the barn. And invariably, it happened quite a bit, a cat would climb up into the tree, go out on a limb, then go up on another limb and an ever higher limb until the cat would get up to the high part of the tree on a limb that was shaky and barely could hold the cat. And then they would just be frozen, not knowing what to do. They were afraid to get back down. And for a while there, we would spend some time trying to coax the cat out of the tree, but the cat wouldn't come. And we realized that eventually change would happen. They would get out of the tree if they at all could because they would get hungry. And a couple days later, we would see the same cat. Well, I've been thinking about those cats, and then I've been thinking about a new cat that's at our house. Laurie and I have a new cat. Our son Charles called a few months ago, and he was finishing college and said, I think I'd like to come to Chicago and live with you guys for a while and then find a place in the city. And we said, that's great. We'd love to have you in Chicago. And then he said, and by the way, can I bring my cat? (laughs) And um, we were thrilled he was coming home and and only modestly thrilled that his cat was coming. (laughs) But we encouraged him to bring the cat, and we are now very glad we did because we really like him. In fact, I'll show you a picture of him. That's Satchel the cat. His name is Satchel. And Satchel is an indoor cat. He'll never go up in a tree. He'll never get out on a high branch. He'll never do anything dramatic. But he does get up on our mantle there. And then the next picture, you'll see what he does, replicating his ancestors. The little cat is on the mantle, and he's wanting to come down. He's out on a limb, so to speak, the indoor equivalent. And he's frozen there. I could take that picture every day because he repeats this over and over. (laughs) Satchel, it's fine. You've jumped down from there before. It's going to be all right. And eventually he does, and thus the end of the cat story. I'm certain a cat illustration is barely useful in describing what people have to do. But there are times in our life When prompted by God, we take a step and we go out on a limb, poised to see or do or understand something better. Maybe some of us here this morning, Zacchaeus-like, are at a place in our life where we have or we need to go out on a limb and really experience life change. Maybe for some people here, just coming to church 
felt like going out on a limb, taking a risk for you. I hope this step will be followed by more, not because you've come to a place where we've got a bunch of people here who all feel like we have it together. We're here because we need God. And if that's the same limb you're on, we're glad you're here. We found God in this place, and we've discovered we need him evermore. And perhaps you're someone who has been a long-standing follower of Jesus, but your life really just isn't going right. Part of it may be unfortunate circumstances, but you know your life is not what it should be. What I would urge you today, if our text tells us anything, is if your life is in a place where it ought not be, go out on a limb and take a risk that God would seize the initiative in your life to lead you to something better and to initiate change in your life. It's possible that someone or someone's here feel remorse for an action or actions in their life that have injured another person. You sense that. You sense that there's something that needs to happen. I would urge you to go out on a limb, talk to God, and accept his challenge to make things right. And no doubt there's folks among us who have gone out on the limb, but you feel frozen. You don't know what next step to take. You don't know which way to go to obtain more relational health or to take steps toward forgiveness or forgiving someone else. Let me just encourage you, you can do this. If God if God can entirely seize the initiative and entirely change the life of a man like Zacchaeus, he can easily, easily do it for all of us. Take a step. Maybe going out on a limb for you would just be be to become a more generous person, to invest yourself more in the work of God, to invest yourself more in the lives of hurting people, to be that person who reaches out and helps to heal the injustices of this world and helps to bring grace and mercy to other people's lives in ways you haven't yet done before, go out on a limb and take the risk. Whatever your situation, no matter what reason you might be out on that limb, please know that God has already made the first move toward you He's already initiated even the thought you have to come closer. And please know that if you're at the place where you're not even sure of what you believe, were you to take the step of faith to go out on the limb, God will way more than meet you halfway. God will seize the initiative for you, embrace you, and say, welcome to my family. This is the kind of work God does then and now. Let's pray. Lord God, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, whatever next steps we need to take, would you give us the courage to respond to respond to, with, to you um, with the whole of our hearts, to give you all that we have, 
to become all we can be, to dive into the joys of what it means to be your follower, to rejoice with you, to be at table with you, to experience your goodness and grace, to become again, to become in the fullest sense possible, not only the children of Abraham, the children of the very living God. We pray all of this in the name of the one who always seizes the initiative. Amen.